Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. I am back from a brief hiatus, and it's good to talk to you again. As you know, this podcast is a one-woman operation, and last week we were having technical difficulties, which means that I was having difficulties. <laughs> so much happened last week, good and bad, and I hope to share more soon, but I got overwhelmed and I had to st- take a step back for a few days. We all need those sometimes, don't we? But thank you so much for sticking with the show, and I promise you I have such an exciting lineup of guests coming up in the next few weeks, I can't wait to share it all with you. I am very excited to announce that today's guest is Peter Jukes. Peter is the co-founder and executive editor of Byline Times. Byline Times is a new type of newspaper. It's published once a month to subscribers and available freely online. The Byline aims to report on what the other papers don't say. They openly state that they are not politically partisan, but they are not a neutral newspaper either, and they take a stand against injustice. It was fantastic to have Peter on the show to talk about the media, the political moment, and the health of British politics. Full disclosure, I don't work for Byline Times, but I have written for the paper before. Now, without further ado, here's Peter. Hi, I'm uh, Peter Jukes. I am executive editor of Byline Times. I have a question for you. We hear a lot about the role of the media and the media needs to be impartial and neutral, etc. Do you think impartiality and neutrality in journalism is possible? Is it even desirable? I think we've got to separate neutrality from objectivity. Now, I don't think any human can be neutral in the face of human rights abuses, whether that's, you know, genocide, violence against women, racism. Also, the very principle where journalism arises in those kind of, you know, liberal values, about the good side of those values about human rights, about truth and empirical data, and about free expression. You know, it comes out of the better side of the Enlightenment. And I don't think you can ever be neutral towards those values. And in some extent, you know, no journalist can be completely objective. I think one of the key things with with neutrality and what you're saying about neutrality and objectivity, because there is this almost insistence from certain parts of the media to have this both sides argument. But some topics don't have both sides. Like you said, when you are challenging somebody's human rights and somebody's right to exist as themselves, you don't have two sides to that equation. So this is the the thing I think began probably 20, 30 years ago, particularly with creationism, arguments show both, even Bush said, shows both sides of the debate. And it has been, especially with climate change, has been used as a wedge to put into the public domain completely untenable mysteries. And that free speech argument, both sides, you know, balances midway between a fact and a lie. The BBC, unfortunately, does do that a lot. In that emphasis on, well, I'm allowed to have my opinion about coronavirus. I get it all the time. Well, I'm allowed to have my opinion about coronavirus and masks and vaccines. No, you're not. Anyway, you can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own facts. You can't, just because you have an opinion, infect my children or vulnerable members of society with coronavirus, just because you have this opinion. You, know, you don't ask, well, what's your opinion on my brain surgery to a neurosurgeon? You, know, you ask them, what is your medically assessed evidence before you operate? And I think... 
That is the luxury of having lots of time for opinion. I mean, back in the 30s or whatever, you know, some truths, political truths, I'm not even talking scientific truths, inalienable, you know, was the Holocaust happening? Or, you know, it's obviously not in the 30s, but were, was Hitler genuinely a vehement anti-Semite who had a, pro, a program to kill the Jews in Europe and Germany? And you can read that he did. And we don't debate whether the Holocaust happened. We don't really debate whether the Earth is flat or round, because, you know, we wouldn't be talking... When you're talking to somebody with a flat earth or on the, on the internet or on radio, you wouldn't be able to do it if the world wasn't round. It wouldn't work. You wouldn't have global telecommunications. And I think that emphasis on free expression is hyper-individualistic, it's hyper-libertarian, and this is the problem. You know, most of the fringes of the far right, I'd say, but most of the enablers of the far right have in their Twitter bias classic liberal. And it's ahistorical. It doesn't understand the difference between libertarianism and liberalism. That's why it's so prominent among Trumpists and sort of certain generation here over Brexit. This luxurious idea of freedom without understanding the underpinnings of it, the generation before went to it, is going to come crashing down. And we're going to learn the hard way that freedom is negotiated between other people. And there is a limit, you know, your fist, your right to swing your fist extends as far as my nose. That's something that people really seem to struggle with, especially on the right, is that um, Free speech is not an absolute right. There are qualifications to it. Your rights end when they start infringing mine. And uh, they seem to really struggle with that understanding. But it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's this hyper-individuality. It's this positioning of the individual in society without having any kind of regard for the fact that you live in a society with other people and your actions have consequences that affect others. I think the biggest example of this lately that I see is when it comes to the COVID vaccine and uh, anti-maskers. And especially I get so frustrated and I, I'm sure everyone does when you see anti-maskers talking about um, masks being a restriction on their freedom and how they will completely fight against any kind of restrictions on their freedom and it's slavery the next step and that is so ahistorical and so illogical as well i mean they don't complain about having to wear seatbelts no. they don't complain having to stop a traffic light which is for public safety the notion of public safety has been abandoned here the precautionary principle on byline times we spent a year and a half dealing with the various elements of this libertarian discourse now what is interesting to me, and actually we had a, a very interesting published yesterday, the psychiatrist, Benjamin Janway, interviewed some anti-vaxxers, and he found that they were quite nice people, but misinformed. My focus, I think, uh, is very interesting to me, is where this libertarian discourse was uh, boosted, applied. You know, it is not general in the public population. You can see dark money. You can see certain commercial organizations. And to me, it goes back to Citizens United, the 2020, 2010 ruling that uh, corporations were individuals and they could have political activities and free speech rights in America, which was very much behind Trump and their response to the sort of populism or the popular grassroots support for Obama. They realized they were, you know, in danger. David Bossie, who put that, got that law passed in the Supreme, was a close friend of Donald Trump and sort of helped him start his campaign. I see the British tradition of this. I saw this around the phone hacking trial and the Levis inquiry because after that, the egregious infringements on privacy, blagging, hacking, all kinds of all things the press had done. You know, there was legislation or a bit of a 
that's just state regulation to get a independent uh, complaints system. And the whole press rallied, well, not all of it, but most of it, but include The Guardian eventually, and private eye rallied behind this idea that a dash of regulation on the press was the end of free speech. And I noticed that the beginning of this libertarian argument began here and escalated. I think you can see what's happened with the press and Gove and Johnson are both pundits, they're not journalists, they're columnists who run the government now, that in a way that infused them from Rupert Murdoch across the press, don't infringe on our free speech rights. Well, they were completely infringing on the liberties of other people. And any analysis of free speech is, of course, you know, there are something like 60 laws. The most obvious one, I think, is you think of excitement that you know, of human rights, free expression. But, you know, you have a right to lie. So if you go around my free, you know, you should be killed. You, that's against the law. Other obvious one is right to a free trial. Rebecca Brooks and Andy Coulson, the two senior murder journalists, one prosecutor, but the other not. Coulson was sent down for phone hacking, were constantly complaining about their privacy rights to the court during the phone hacking trial. Was that eight years, seven, eight years ago? So I do think it's been weaponized by commercial interests, and it is eventually effectively about corporations and powerful individuals having the right to free speech, who always, in my experience, sue you at the drop of a hat. You know, Russian oligarchs, you know, going about constantly trying to sue us and other people like Catherine Belton. What do you think was the role that the media played when it comes to? Brexit, when it comes to ensuring that Brexit is now our reality. Because I always thought that um, Nigel Farage is a good example of this. He was always given too much airtime, especially on the BBC, as um, presenting a legitimate point of view, a legitimate option. And the same, you would say, the equivalent from the left was never really given that kind of airtime. And I always wonder, for example, just the top of my head, what would have happened if instead of Farage on the news, we had Caroline Lucas, for example? Yeah, I think there's two things going on here, and it is indicative of both in the US and UK, a flaw in our institutions, a assumption which was lazy and dangerous and led to this. But first, let's be clear, the main forces behind this, offshore money, non-domicide oligarchs, Murdoch, um, whatever, I forget who used to, Desmond used to run the Express, the Rothermeers, the Barclay brothers, all these people want a low-tax, deregulated economy and pump money into this country where they don't pay taxes. A lot of American money came over through those think tanks, the Koch brothers, Robert Mercer, the billionaire hedge fund owner who sort of funded and started up Cambridge Analytica. So you had a deliberate a shift, you know, deliberate right wing, dark money offshore, and, and with, you know, indisputably with help from Russian oligarchs for different reasons sometimes, or sometimes the same reasons. It was dark money offshore, bonded kleptocracy, who wanted to undermine the nation state and the rule of law. But you're right, the really interesting thing is how, you know, liberal organizations like the BBC or even places like The Guardian or the Remain campaign completely got this wrong, completely underestimated it. And the only way I think it needs some study from somebody like you, Maria, is I remember, I'm old enough to remember, triangulation in the 90s. You know, you had Bill Clinton, you know, basically triangulating around, so with Democrat, well, well, follow these Reaganite policies, 
famously Blair and Brown doing it, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Then, you know, that Blairism, that Clintonism sort of dictated the terms, the debate to Cameron. But the right realized we can do the same, but shift the Overton window, shift the discourse constantly to the right. So they would do this thing. You constantly had UKIP chasing the Conservative Party, moving further right. Then you have the ERG when May, European Research Group, when May was in power, moving it further right, ensuring a hard Brexit, almost a no deal Brexit. And the right has realized that the sort of party system can be gamed that way. And you can fund stuff over there, astroturf it, especially with social media. Create, you see, this is coronavirus denial, a, a sense of a popular movement out on the right and keep on shifting things. And I don't think the BBC saw that coming. I don't think they realized the vast amounts of money that went to these think tanks like the Henry Jackson Society, which kept on honorable people. They seem decent. I know some people, Henry Jackson, they are seem like nice people, but they're, you know, in a way, they're pushing the great replacement theory, all kinds of uh, dangerous, toxic nonsense like that. And the BBC, like the famous frog in the, in the water, did not realise the temperature was being pulled up. And I don't know the solution to that. I mean, it, it, I, it, exposure, daylight is a good thing. I, my gut feeling is that because of international finance, international social media, you see my Russian, Iranian bot accounts, you know, that our settlement on democracy, the way we regulate it, is out of date. We have transnational actors who have no investment, who can game the markets, can game local democracy, create these fake grassroots moves. And maybe, just like money laundering or tax evasion and avoidance, it can only be dealt with in an international way. I think it's the times we live in, and our party system is quite creaky, and our institutions are quite outmoded and incapable of dealing with this. What do you think, based on all of this that you've said then, if you could judge the health of British democracy, what would you say? Sick man of Europe, parlous condition, with, I must say, congenital conditions, which Brexit has only brought to the fore. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's one of the most disastrous votes in British history. It's sort of worse than Suez and self-inflicted, or Suez kind of stuff, and will mark the end of, you know, any ideas of British or English exceptionalism. But everything that was wrong as displayed by Brexit was already wrong. The ownership of our media, this sort of mixed system of the BBC and the feral press, well, it actually turned out not to be a very stable system. The House of Lords, the way that you, know, you can stuff it with cronies, you then get involved in dodgy contracts, son of a KGB officer gets elevated because his boss is mate. The ministerial code that's not enforceable that it's up to Johnson whether to enforce the code which he keeps on breaking. The powers of Parliament, you know, that the, the, the role, you know, almost, it was almost prorogated, you know, we have this mechanism just to shut down democracy. It's not quite the Reichstag fire, but it's kind of, you know, on the scale of, of that. You still have this amazing executive power in the crown, the, the royal prerogative, which allows to, you know, ride roughshod a legislature, also, there's no compulsion, like Dominic Cummings was supposed to turn up to the DCMS committee to answer both Lee's proven wrongdoings when it came to electoral finances and overspend, and just refused. There was no sanction on him. 
In America, that's a subpoena. You go to jail if you don't turn up. So from Eden to the monarchy to parliament, which I see, you know, Caroline Lucas described as this Victorian neo-Gothic monstrosity, rat-ridden and sinking into the Thames, it has proved how careless we've been about our constitution, how all the reforms are half-baked that now allow Blair's reforms, the House of Lords, allow Johnson to get away, making it one of the biggest assemblies outside in China. And that was always the case. And if it wasn't Brexit, that would have exposed it, something else would. So uh, in a way, you're in a bad way. You're in a parlous state. You're the sick, sick man of Europe. You see all the symptoms around and now you understand the causes because maybe you can do something about it. I always describe Brexit as a monumental act of national self-harm. You were very right in what you said that the Brexit didn't change anything. It exposed something. It exposed nothing that is happening in Britain now is happening because Brexit made it happen. But Brexit exposed mm. these undercurrents. For me, from the own research, my own research interest that I do is when it comes to white supremacy, white nationalism in particular, and the far right. And there is this tendency for people to talk about how the far right has, you know, Brexit has led to, has acted as a catalyst for the rise of the far right in the UK. But it hasn't. It has exposed how the far right mm. had been working all this time in the background. And he has brought all of this into the forefront. And um, white nationalism, I look at white nationalism as the political ideology of the far right. It's yeah. essentially about creating a nation state just for what they consider to be the majority, and um, which is in this country, white people. And you have this line of white nationalism in Britain running from the empire until Brexit and where we are now, because it's about trying to force a reality that is doesn't exist. It's trying to yeah. impose this utopian, for some people, <laughs> this ideal of um, a white country, a British country with nobody else inside, which is a historical, it was never like that, and it doesn't work, but they keep on trying to do it. And we can see over and over again how damaging that is. And for me, the greatest example of this mainstreaming of this kind of ideology is, well, a lot of the policies of the Tory government, but also the recent um, news that Britain First has become you know, a political yeah. party again. Britain First is a white nationalist organization. Absolutely. And they are given a legitimacy now of being a political party. And they have thrown their support for the Tory policy as well. So I am just astounded at all of this, is that all of this is happening in the country. Perhaps I shouldn't be because of the research that I do. But I think what astounds me just is how obvious it is now, how open it is. Well, what is interesting to me exactly to that point, you know, that and it's, it's such a, I don't think the, the political rhetoric and the reality on the street. Now, no, don't get me wrong, I'm not downplaying the, the amount of street violence, especially employment discrimination of people of color. But my kid brother, adopted kid brother, was Bayesian. And the amount of violence and verbal abuse in the 70s and 80s was, I think, I'm not a person of color, Armenian background, but obviously identified as white, was worse, I think. I mean, slightly different if you're Muslim or if you're a woman wearing hijab. But, but what happened with Kazavi Nogpal, the Conservative Party, you know, cauterize that. They said, we're not dealing with that. He left, 
there's a speech, but we're not playing. And, and you've got to remember, it was a very working class populist sentiment too. It's much more like Aaron Banks. He was appealing not just to the to gentry squires, you know, Colonel Fortune Smythe who'd been in India, but also to Dockers who marched in, you know, support, of, you know better than I do, of you know power because of the threats to their labor. Now that idea of the ethnic, the ethnic state, that idea of ethnic nationalism was fairly effectively suppressed in the mainstream parties. But as soon as Trump, you know, you see this as conservative MPs, the extraordinary statements they now make, especially on the war on woke, they always believed in it. They were just suppressed. They were controlled. It was, and I think that's right with the racism. Now, I did, and talk to anybody of colour, after Brexit, the number, the amount of verbal abuse and physical attack. My co-founder's son is mixed race. He was attacked the night of Brexit. And I think... They were always there, but now they were allowed. And this just speaks well to social control in a way. And that's the thing. The angry people have a lot of power. And it is incumbent, so incumbent on conservatives like Johnson to realize they're playing with fire. And I think they really are. I don't think, well, I know you know better. There are echoes of not just Germany, but other states in Europe, which tried to deal with the fascist right and conservatives tried to deal with them. Let's appeal a little bit for their vote, you know what I mean? Let's just, you know, Thatcher did it over swamping. You know, she made that little reference in 1979 when they were running for election about being swamped by immigration. Now it's completely out in the open. The first opening gambit when Boris Johnson resigned as home as foreign secretary was clearly going for the leadership in 2018, I think it was, was to write an article calling Muslim women, describing bank robbers. That was a, not even a dog whistle, I mean, that's a wolf whistle to the far right. They, I don't know, you're a better analyst of this, but it seems to be that dark triangulation that happens always shifts to the right. And ultimately, you're right, and I, we had spoke to Paul Mason about this, it is, and it is genocidal. Why? Because, you know, I know from my mixed Armenian Welsh uh, parentage, that when people go down the ethnic route, even spuriously based on fake science, on just appearance, they are talking about you being a second-class person and not existing. You know, that you don't really always, it ends in the camps. I think that you can't dabble in fascism, you know, because <laughs> even if you, you can't just dabble in fascism or you can't be fascist adjacent if you go in that direction, even if you're just dipping a toe, then that's one step too far because we know where it goes. And it's, I find it very frustrating. A lot of people, you know, think that I'm exaggerating when I say that Britain is, we have some fascist politics going on in this country right now. And uh, I think there is yeah. a tendency to think of, of fascism just in a historical context. You know, it's a historical event. There was a British Union of fascists, but we don't have that anymore. But it's really... That is a misunderstanding because fascism is a type of politics. It's not a historical event. It's a type of politics. And it's a type of politics that is the dominant politics of this country right now. We see it with the attacks on the media, with the attacks on the judiciary, the attacks on the rule of law, the attacks on the freedom to protest, this ridiculous thing, you know, attack on critical race theory and a report coming out saying the seal report that there is no institutional racism in the country it's it's bonkers and you can't just dabble in this kind of politics because these politics have consequences especially for the most vulnerable what's fascinating about this is also the role empire plays in it because 
Hadid Mathai, our editor, writes about this extent, and you see it with figures like Said Javid, Priti Patel, Munira Mirza. There's a, there's a legacy from empire, which is very good at hiding this racist agenda by having people of color to front it up. You know, and the Sewell Report was part of that. And I think that makes it historically different because that's how we manage politically large, very independent and very complicated societies like India. The British co-opted. They're very good, you know, co-opting others to run their, you know, their damage limitation for them. So uh, unlike, you know, you didn't really get that in 30s Germany, you know, it was other movements involved. And I think that 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 is what Johnson does more, even better than Trump and more disingenuously, is to say, I can't be fascist because this person, that person, that person. You know, but let's be clear, there were Jews who joined the SS, you know, people you know, who thought, believed, believed. And I'm not saying it's the same degree, but I think that just shows you how our colonial mentality makes us vulnerable to this, and not just among white supremacists, yeah. among the people we... I think I want to get a bit academic here. And what we're what you're talking about is the construction of whiteness rather than white as a skin color, whiteness as a, as power, and it is yeah. that proximity to power that um, means your the proximity to whiteness means a proximity to power. So you do kind of play into those same politics to partake in the power while at the same time continuously reinforcing the power structure of whiteness, which is what white supremacy is. People think that white supremacy just means, you know, hating black people and being racist and being member of the Klan. That's not white supremacy. White supremacy is a system, a way of organizing society where whiteness as a construction has the power and the rights that everybody else doesn't. So, um, yeah, and I think that's that's where a huge amount of education is going on. I think the Sewell Report, oddly enough, helped that way. To realize it isn't about individual or this person's race or not, it's about a system of discrimination. And then, as you say, a system of power, which is enforcing these differences because of a believing, you know, they're due to them through some ethnic heritage. And I I think we are moving on in that discussion, even if the government, just as we are on the police and discriminate institutional racism, now institutional corruption, Daniel Morgan, and then by the Times has written four articles, five in recent days about treatment of women and you know sex cases and misconduct cases domestic abuse by police officers you can see institutional sexism in the police and yeah but it's a it's a difficult thing to explain isn't it oh some of my best friends are black or oh i met you know he didn't mean it he didn't mean it boys john johnson's jokes it doesn't matter if he meant it what message is going out and what are the structures around him which enforce that Hey, frenemies, I am here to remind you that the inaugural meeting of the Anti-Fascism Book Club will be this Saturday, the 30th of October at 9.30 p.m. All monthly supporters of the show over a coffee will receive their invite this week. I wanted to broadcast the book club live on YouTube, but I haven't quite figured out the best way of doing this yet. Instead, the book club discussion will be edited and published as a bonus episode of the podcast. There's still time to earn your spot to come join us and discuss how fascism works live, all of us together. So check out our coffee link on the episode description. Thank you all so much for supporting Enemies of the People, Rough Edges and all, and for being so patient during our brief hiatus. We are back to our our weekly schedule now until Christmas, and honestly, the next few episodes will cover 
everything from the battle over trans rights, QAnon, disinformation on TikTok, vaccine conspiracy theories, the racism of ancient aliens, and so much more. So stick around. If you're one of our supporters over at Coffee, I want you to know that I am toying with the idea of starting our own Discord server so we can foster the enemies of the people community, have discussions about the episodes, suggest future episodes, etc. So let me know if that's something you'd be interested in and I'll start working on it. And we're still trying to leapfrog Nigel Farage on the charts, so remember to share our podcast with everyone you know. Thank you so much for listening and now back to the show. So I have this quote here from this book that I'm researching and um, I'm researching a book on the history of white nationalism in the UK right now. And this is from Enoch Powell, but not Enoch Powell from Oswald uh, Mosley. And it could have said by Jacob Riesbog says these alien hands are reaching for what is ours. And it's, it's, but he's talking, well, obviously the EU didn't exist then. He's talking about UK city financiers and MPs doing a lot of um, foreign aid and giving money to the countries and stuff. But this idea of these aliens' hand reaching into our pot is, for me, when I read it, I was like, well, this could have said by Jacob Rees-Bogg in, in, the, in the Commons. Yeah, it's also, I'm sure, you're creating identity by creating an enemy. As you've seen, as you observed, you know, it's... The enemy without is the EU. Now it's the enemies within. It's the judges. And now, you know, he would, you know, because of the structural problems leaving the EU, especially in this hard Brexit, it creates like with the refugees, you know, why should France now cooperate with us on, you know, channel crossings or whatever like that? It's going to intensify that feeling of, of, of poverty, of isolation. And so it becomes a very, it's the rhetoric just accelerates. And I, I it, the problem is how you stop it and, you know, not fall for the big lies. I mean, in a way, I was much more worried about the UK than America because America has better checks and balances. They can vote out Trump. We can vote out Brexit. They won't allow the second vote. But now I'm, I'm slightly more worried about America because they really have the Republican Party, a whole political party, has brought into the big lie of the vote being stolen last week. And their big lies, you know, better than anybody is the, you know, somebody betrayed us. Who is it? Let's go and find them and get rid of them. And that was the cause of the Nazi party after the defeat of World War One. And I do why about here there's a big lie. There's lots of big lies. Johnson is a lie in a comic way. My question to you with is actually the basis of the way civil society works and the or already what's happened with Brexit. You know, it's not like, oh, because you know, there's a material, a stolen vote undermines democracy. Allegations of a stolen vote undermine democracy. Brexit undermines the economy. And you can't kind of cover that up after a while. <laughs> you can keep on saying it, actually, but, you know, it just when the food's not in the shops, it just becomes impossible to maintain this. And I'm slightly more hopeful that if, if Brexit is the big lie that enables the fascist right here, it's going to be easier to get rid of. I hope so. I do worry about disinformation being so powerful and um, a lot of people really not wanting to to know different but also again to circle back to where we started about the role of the media in this if we're going yeah. to tackle it then the media has to play a key role i did a degree my my first degree is in media studies and journalism and and i know that this is very belittled it's very common to belittle much needed 
much I, know. I wish more people started it now that's i'm very proud of my degree in media studies because media literacy is so important and it needs to be taught and it's not so i can't see this changing and i can't see us tackling the big lie of brexit and this fascist politics in the uk without the media playing a key role in this in challenging what's out there but you see you know, when we, it's 20 years ago, we talk about the media, we'd be talking about big newspaper group broadcasters, now with social media, which obviously has many disadvantages, fake accounts, disinformation spread there. And there's the promises of the techno futurist, peer to peer, it'll be lovely democracy. Well, I didn't realize the first thing people start downloading is porn and then cat images and then, you know, astroturfed accounts, fake bots, you know, selling advertising, undermining politics. People kind of forgot that bit. And it's all controlled by a few big tech companies, which are black boxes, even though they're bigger than the state of China, as Facebook. But there's no accountability there. It's owned by, controlled by one billionaire. But the, the other side of that is, is the ability to organize. I detect, you know, we do have an impact. The BBC is forced to quote us times. We, you know, there comes a point that I think the BBC and a lot of these old institutions were gamed by these you know, automated consensus driven by dark money. You know, and so they're all surrounded in this. It's information warfare. Surrounded in this media space. So, oh, we're really left wing. Let's move a bit more in the centre. But actually, they're over there. You know what I mean? Information. And that's information warfare is the, the fifth battle space. You just... You know, you have land, land, sea, space, and air, right? We have information space. You move people to where you want them to assassinate them with a drone or whatever by surrounding them with false information. And that's what's happened, I think, to some of our MPs, to some of our mainstream media players who see all these bots. If you go into GB News Stream, oh my goodness, oh, I've I've been calling it a couple of times. <laughs> you know, Ah, it's just like a welter of these fans accounts saying horrible things. You know, there's a, it's, and, and, you know, there's genuine people there, but a lot not. But that is the, I think you're right, media or information is the battleground. That's partly because in the information economy, it's very lucrative. I mean, you know, I don't know, 50, 40% GDP, whether it's fintech or whatever, revolves around information production. Uh, so there's a lot of money to be made in it now. And, and it's very easy. And the startup cost for a newspaper, for a blog, to a fake account, you know, news site in America, which the Russians set up, the IRA, the Kremlin-controlled um, internet troll farm, the barriers to entry are very, very low. You don't have gatekeepers in the same way. More. So it really relies on citizen editing. On citizen, not citizen journalism, no, that's all important too. But it's editorial. Again, I don't trust this. This link doesn't work out. That fact about child vaccines is, you know, deaths of children with vaccine, somebody else. And I see it, that debate going on all the time in social media, counterfacts, it goes wrong most of the time, people argue. But it is a community moderation. When I first involved in blogs in 2004, Daily Cost, I started writing about politics again after years in drama. But community moderation was the model that you don't have an autocrat saying you're bad. There were rules, but basically you hoped the community would find a balance of discourse, you know, how to conduct complicated discussions about Israel, Palestine, so rules about that, and also verification of facts, you know, assessing evidence. I think we're forced to become media literate. I'm optimistic on this sense. Thank you. One final question, if I may. Very briefly, 
because I don't want to take more of your time, 10 years on, a decade onwards from the Levinson inquiry, how would you judge the health of, of media and journalism in the UK? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was like there was a diagnosis there of, you know, I don't like to use medical analogies, but let's go for one. Like cancer, but like, you know, you have diabetes too. You have really got a problem with your pancreas and you should deal with it. And the press, no, no, you're wrong. Shut up, doctor. I'm sacking the doctor. Not going to deal with you anymore. Eating more and more carbohydrates. Meanwhile, you know, the reality is that you can see during the pandemic, the press was kept afloat by government subsidies to advertise. Commercially, they're not very viable. We saw this with the problem with GB News. They have relied on having a monopoly of advertising, which in a way, for good and bad, has been sucked away by Google and Facebook. And they are cash starved, they don't employ anybody more. And I feel with the main papers, their sole reason is, is to lobby power. They're a lobbying group, you know. They don't measure it's the interest of the people they capture governments. Johnson and Goat are their prime candidates because Johnson dismissed phone hacking, Goat close to Murdoch. You know, it's a cartel, a narrow cartel. And 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 so Leveson diagnosed the problem and they reacted by getting worse. And and just one other thought on that was that I'm, <laughs> you know, I don't remember you're too young, but I remember when you wouldn't remember it because I remember when uh, Wall Street, the movie came out about insider trading and Michael Douglas is good. And most of us, I think a lot of us, I read you, that's bloody awful. Other people read it as an instruction manual. That's exciting, something we should do. Leveson was, you know, the hearings about phone hacking and the phone hacking trial 2012 to 13. I think people say, oh, phone hacking, that's a bit old, isn't it? You know, voicemail messages. Let's do exactly the same on the internet. Now, there's evidence that papers involved in email hacking. But I think to somebody like Alexander Nix, who's looking at the modus operandi of our federal press, well, then, oh, that's awful. It would have, I, Alexander, if you're listening, I'm not saying this, could have been a bit of inspiration. You know, well, why don't we do that? And that's when Cambridge Analytica was set up, which hacked, by the way, talking about hacking, over 70 million. 75 million Facebook profiles, all their metadata, their likes, whatever, and including their direct messages and including mine. That's why I'm a part of a class action on behalf of Facebook users who were hacked by the Cambridge Analytica app, this is your digital life. You know, they copied, they just, you know, they automated and extens, you know, extended phone hacking by a factor of many thousands. I, I can't prove this, and so I've paid said some caution. I have suspicion that Dominic Cummings used those techniques. He clearly used the delivery mechanism, a subsidiary, a former subsidiary, a spin-off of Cambridge Analytica, AIQ, to deliver most of those billions of ads in the last few days of Brexit. He had his own data team, which are now called Faculty AI. You know, I, you know, I guess I can't prove it, and Dominic, come and tell me if you think differently. They went, well, we can do better than Cambridge Analytica. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me and answer these questions. Thanks so much for inviting you. What a great conversation. I'll listen out for your other podcasts and love to hear the one on Cambridge Analytica. Thank you. That was Peter Jukes. You can find him on Twitter at Peter Jukes. Remember, the Anti-Fascism Book Club will meet this Saturday at 9.30 p.m. And you can still sign up to it by becoming a member over at Coffee. And don't worry, if you can't make it, the book club discussion will be edited and posted as a bonus episode of this podcast. 
Next week, I will also be announcing the theme of November's book club. But here's a rather obscure hint. Blasphemy! You're lucky I don't cast you out or smite you or something. Any guesses? <laughs> Let me know. If you like the show, please tell everyone you know. Sharing is caring and it significantly helps us grow. Remember, we're still trying to get one over Nigel Farage and leapfrog him on the podcast charts. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.